The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox this Thursday morning. These are your headlines. So will it be one and done US stocks drop as the Fed cuts rates by a quarter point? For the first time since 2008, Bart suggests this may not actually be the start of an easing cycle. The committee is really thinking of, of this as, uh, as a way of adjusting policy to a somewhat more accommodative stance. And we're thinking of it as essentially in the nature of a mid-cycle adjustment to policy. The dollar jumps and the yield curve flattens on the central bank's apparently more hawkish tone, whilst President Trump slams Jerome Powell by tweeting that the Fed chief let us down. Standard Chartered beats first-half profit estimates as the bank flags concerns over trade tensions and lower interest rates. And Société Générale's second quarter profit and revenue comes in lower year-on-year as the French bank makes strong progress on capital. Hear from Deputy CEO Philippe Haim at 7.15 CET. Look at these big, sophisticated markets getting all hung up on two words. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Mid-cycle, apparently that's one word, adjustment. Mid-cycle adjustment. You've got yourselves right in a twist about it, haven't you? Uh, well, these are the two words from the Fed Chair Jerome Powell that sent U.S. stocks tumbling. Mid-cycle adjustment. Get used to it, guys. <laughs> anyway, despite the first quarter point uh, rate cut, first cut actually in more than a decade, uh, Mr. Powell's comments dampen hopes of further cuts this year after what traders said was an already disappointing statement. So later in the press conference, Mr. Powell tried to clarify his remarks, suggesting the economy doesn't want, at the moment, aggressive easing. It's not the beginning of a long series of rate cuts. I didn't, I didn't say it's just one or anything like that. What I said is when you think about rate cutting cycles, they go on for a long time. And the committee's not seeing that, not seeing us in that place. You would do that if you saw real economic weakness and you thought that the federal funds rate needed to be cut a lot. That's not and what we're seeing. The amazing Pavlovian reaction, the, the hammer hitting the knee. President Trump uh, expressed his disappointment on Twitter. I would never have thought it. But anyway, he said, as usual, Powell let us down, but added that at least the Fed has done its quantitative, uh, ended its quantitative tightening program. Yeah, of course, they ended it bang on as of today, which is two months early. Right, how did the market's reaction? You know what, Steve? The president was right. Markets were disappointed. This is the picture behind me for Wall Street. So you can see Dow ended the session down 333 points lower 1.2 percent weaker at one point we were down more than 450 points things really started to turn with that uh, phrasing of mid-cycle adjustments really didn't give the hint there that they are about to embark on a lengthy rate cutting cycle so that was a bit of a disappointment to people especially longs in front end rates we'll get to that in a second but that was the picture for dow s p also weaker to the tune of about one percent nasdaq the tech composite index also down more than 1.2 percent so heavy session for U.S. equities. Let's talk about the reaction in fixed income here because we did see a bit of a torquing of the curve. And actually, you would think that when the Fed cut interest rates, their sole intention would be to steepen the curve. We got the exact opposite reaction yesterday. So what happened is uh, the front end sold off uh, about three, four basis points on disappointment that they may uh, perhaps have not gone for the 50 basis point cut or are going to start on at the beginning of a, a full rate 
cutting cycle for the rest of the year. So that was disappointing for the front end yields shot up. And then 10 year we had rallying on the fact that they will be ending their balance sheet runoff sooner than expectations in August, as well as disappointment that they didn't go for more and not getting ahead of the inflation curve. So 203 is where we're at for 10s. The curve actually flattened. Quick look at dollar as well, because the dollar versus euro is now trading at a two-month high here. So we've broken through 111, 11050. The instant reaction after Fed rate cut was for the dollar to strengthen. Who would have thought? Uh, but that is the picture for euro. And we've also got sterling trading weaker to the tune of 121.30. Those sterling probably, you could argue, isn't really helping itself uh, from a political perspective. But that was the picture. Stronger dollar, flatter curve, bit of disappointment in both rates markets and equity markets as well, Steve. Fabulous. Thank you very much indeed for that. Well, look, we're in the fantastic position where we can get straight to a senior banking executive to get his take uh, on rate moves as well. So just to say that the ING uh, 20... 19 second quarter net result is coming at 1.44 billion euros. Net core lending grew by 7.4 billion euros. Net customer deposit inflow amounted to 11.7 billion euros. Um, what else can I tell you about these figures? I'll tell you they're comfortable on the regulatory capital front. CET1 ratio at 14.5%. Let's get to Taneta Futrakul, who is the CFO of ING. So thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, look, um, well, first we'll talk about your numbers, then about the broader central banking environment, if I may just tap your knowledge for that as well. But in terms of what you've seen at ING in the second quarter, are you heartened by the economic environment in Europe or are you concerned, sir? Good morning. Hi, good morning, Steve, and uh, <clears throat> very nice to be on your show. I think what we see really just on, on the ING commercial evolution in the second quarter, I think we're really pleased by our commercial momentum, over 300,000 new primary customers added. I think as we see now, we have over 38 million retail customer worldwide. So we're, we're very pleased about that. And as you mentioned at the top of uh, the, your show, very good um, financial performance coming into the second quarter with uh, 1.4 billion uh, and uh, almost 11% return on equity. Now, as you mentioned, the rate cuts last night, the, the kind of the press conference, I think we were somewhat expecting that. And I think at ING, we're really looking at how do we navigate through the, this interest rate environment, which we now call negative for long environment here in the Eurozone. So negative for long interest rate environment also now in the Eurozone. I'm just going to pick up on that since you mentioned it. Uh, we hear some of your uh, competition in within uh, the Euro region and also within Switzerland have now actually started charging uh, their clients negative rates. Is that something that you would start considering as well, especially given what you said, negative rates are likely to stay with us, if not move even lower? Yes, I think the, the number of leverage that uh, financial institution can take is becoming more narrow. As you know, in the past few years, uh, banks like ING, we were able to basically um, compensate for this uh, negative rates by lowering our client deposit rates. But now in many of our Eurozone markets, we're reaching that absolute zero uh, level. We are trying other avenues before we get to considering negative rates on deposits for example, diversifying into other geographies beyond the Eurozone, trying to reprice our asset books and try to increase the amount of fee income that we have. But indeed, 
if these rates are negative for long, it's something that uh, not only ING, but the other institutions, particularly in the Eurozone, needs to consider as well. Sir, I can't help thinking that European banking is in an absolute crisis that is being masked, perhaps even exacerbated by central bank action as well. We have way too many banks. We have way too many unprofitable banks. And your own bank, and we've heard comments from Ralph Harms as well, is loath to consolidate via cross-border mergers as well. Am I wrong to say that European banking is in a profitability crisis? Um, I think if you look at the overall industry return on equity, you're right that perhaps uh, there's pressure and there's going to be more pressure to come. But I think speaking for our own institution at ING, you know, we're taking steps to make sure that we can, as much as we can, sustain our profitability, sustain our return on equity, and make sure we have a healthy uh, capital ratio, which, as you can see in our uh, second quarter results, we are doing that with uh, almost 11% return on equity and a core tier one of 14 and a half. And indeed, uh, you do have that 14 and a half uh, capital ratio. But I want to ask you about provisions. In the last quarter, your loan provisions had actually gone up. It's surprising to see that in this environment, given how low interest rates are and given how low the default rates are out there. How are we looking for yeah. this quarter and how do you see things panning out in the second half of the year? Yeah, I, I think we are quite comfortable with where we are in terms of our uh, provisioning. In, in fact, we think it's, it's still low compared to the over-the-cycle risk cost that we expect. It's roughly about 14 basis points of customer lending, whereas I think over the cycle, we expect somewhere around 25 basis points over customer lending. Right? But I think in Q2, if anything, our retail provisions are down, and we had certain specific files, which we do from time to time in wholesale banking, that pushes up uh, provisioning a little bit. Absolutely fascinating to speak to you, sir, and it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, and we look forward to speaking to you many times in the future. Tanete Futrakor, who is a CFO of ING, you raise absolutely the key point there, I think, as well. Raising provisions in an era where we are concerned about profitability and loan losses and about what the central banks are doing, I think it's absolutely key as well. So we'll carry on this vein as well. By the way, did I tell you we've got Jess Daly coming up as well? Yeah, banking super show in many ways, plus Societe Generale boosts capital as net profit falls in the second quarter. So we've heard from ING, we'll hear from Barclays. Next up is the deputy CEO at Societe Generale. Stay tuned. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. More banking news for you. Uh, Standard Chartered has posted a 3% rise in first half pre-tax profits, but warned that trade tensions are affecting sentiment. The lender's return on tangible equity improved to 8.4%, but stressed it remains confident of delivering return on tangible equity greater than 10% by 2021. The bank also said U.S. interest rates look, quote, 
likely to decline, well, we know that now, due to stubbornly low inflation. Societe Generale's net profit fell 14% in the second quarter as restructuring costs weighed on the results. The French bank booked a one-off charge of 227 million euros related to its overhaul, but said that it is 35% of the way through. That's very specific, isn't it? Exactly 35% <laughs> of the way through its cost-cutting program. That is an extraordinary specific. Um, so look, uh, very in very interesting. We saw on the, the last show, uh, Capital um, Connection, uh, comments about whether there was a value trap in the banking sector. And I just had a look at the valuation of this company. Mm. 5.8 times forward it trades on as well, with a price to book of, wait for it, 0.3. Wow, that's Societe Generale. It yeah. does tell you about uh, the, the process of restructuring they're going through and also, you know, the strategic plan that was unveiled uh, by the CEO uh, not so long ago. So they're about 35% of the way through the cost cutting. They also have challenges on the capital front as well. Uh, and then lots of investors were looking for and tick up in their CET1 sure. ratio. Uh, definitely a lot of questions and also about profitability overall, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We're very interested that the brokers still pretty much uh, unconvinced by this one. 12 holders on this stock, two sellers, big one, five sellers and two strong sellers. Uh, only a couple of buyers and a couple of strong buyers out there. So Juliana uh, has been speaking to the deputy CEO, Philippe Heim, and asked him if Societe Generale is losing market share. Let's listen in. I would say that uh, obviously the, the context was not very supportive. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the inflation is significant. You see that uh, sequentially between Q1 and Q2, we are up by 9%. So the market was tough uh, in fixed income, uh, in forex, in rates, uh, obviously. Uh, but in equity, uh, I think the performance was uh, pretty good in structured products. Uh, the volumes were low in flows, but nevertheless, I think the performance was uh, pretty good inflows. And also uh, in financing businesses, I think that uh, uh, volumes were pretty important. Uh, you, we, after a very strong Q1, we have another good Q2. Uh, and it shows the benefit of having a diversified global platform. Uh, so able to, to serve clients both in markets and financing activities. Uh, Juliana, is there a sense that this company is in crisis, that the French banking sector is in crisis? Because if there isn't a sense that they're in crisis, why on earth are these stocks trading at 0.34 price to book? I leave it with you. Good morning to you. Good morning. Well, as uh, you guys were discussing just before you came to me, Sakjan is in the process of restructuring the company. And the reason that the market is sort of on hold largely on this stock is the execution risk that comes with delivering on this restructuring plan. You mentioned that they're 35% of the way there on their cost-cutting ambitions. That 35% is working toward a 1.6 billion euro uh, number for 2020. But the market doesn't quite believe that they're going to get there. So they have shown some progress on costs, but they still have the majority of those cost savings to come. Now, coming back to these results today, capital was one of the key focal points for investors, as Jamana mentioned. And today they made strong progress on their on the capital front. They raised their core one capital ratio to 12%, which was their target for 2020. So they've done this now by the end of H1. You'll remember they made big progress last quarter as well. So that trend has continued. And then they've made some progress on the cost front. Now, putting this into context of the broader 
European banking environment. I know you guys have been laboring over this for the last uh, 24 hours in the studio, but uh, we heard from the Swiss banks yesterday on their plans to mitigate the impact of lower for longer, the, the impact of negative rates. They're actually considering uh, putting negative rates on their wealthy clients. So when I spoke to the deputy CEO of SockGen, I asked him uh, what he thinks of this policy and whether SockGen would consider doing the same. Take a listen. Obviously, uh, the continuation of a dovish policy by, by ECB is not a good news. I mean, for, for sure, for the financial system, it put pressure on retail activities. At some point, it will also put pressure on insurance companies, uh, those guaranteeing a specific yield on, on, on selling plants. Uh, what is important for us is being a diversified banks. Uh, as we will show to the market tomorrow, only 10% of our global revenues are stemming from uh, interest rates revenues, so directly exposed to interest rates. So uh, thanks to this uh, significant diversification, uh, we've got only, uh, let's say, 30% uh, of our retail activity uh, in France. Uh, we have another leg uh, in emerging markets. We are also exposed to insurance, to financing activities, and of course in global markets. So we manage to mitigate those effects. But I would say that in the long run, it put pressure on the financial system. So you heard there from the deputy CEO of SockGen talking about uh, the environment and the impact that low rates is having on SockGen. And when I asked him if they were considering a similar measure themselves, he said clearly it's a, uh, a policy you could apply, not something they're looking at for corporate or retail. So this is obviously something that UBS is uh, looking at and Credit Suisse looking at for their wealthy clients and SockGen just focusing on retail and corporate there, uh, but potentially not ruling it out for their wealthy clients. So uh, putting it all together again, investors are skeptical coming into today around the execution risk, around capital build. They've made strong progress on capital, but I think the question still remains longer term whether this restructuring plan is enough. Back to you guys. Yeah, excellent. And it's about the backdrop as well. There's self-help and then there's a the broader market. Excellent work. Thank you very much. We'll see you later. Look, the following statement is not me being editorial. And this is why we asked the question about ING and we're asking the question now, are we in a crisis in Europe or not? I think there's an open question. I'm not making a judgment on it. But look, listen to this. The outlook for short cycle business has significantly deteriorated. Uh, significantly weaker environment in key markets. Geopolitics and geoeconomics are hurting positive investment sentiment. Those are quite damning words. They're not mine. They're not me editorializing. They're from the biggest industrial company in Europe, give or take. That's Siemens. That's Joe Kayser speaking, the CEO today. The outlook for short cycle business has significantly deteriorated. I almost don't need to say much more. But apart from that, I will give you the uh, the figures out from Siemens today. Look, they're, they're, they're respectable in a tough environment. Third quarter revenues come in in line with expectations. 21.275 billion euros. 21.22 was expected as well. Uh, the third quarter orders, they look at a slight beat by around about, in fact, a decent beat by a billion euros. Let's call it where we see it as well. Uh, but industrial EBITDA, uh, much lower than expected at 1.94 billion over at Siemens as well. But the basic line for me, as far as I can see, is short cycle business has significantly deteriorated, significantly weaker environment in key markets. That is Joe Kayser speaking. And as you can see on the screen that you just saw there, 18% lower over 12 months. And with many of these earnings, Steve, uh, the language and the guidance that they use is very, very important. I want to take you also to ArcelorMittal, uh, another industry that also is, uh, has been facing a numerous 
challenges this year. Uh, so uh, let's just start off with their the results, actually. Looking at the numbers here, ArcelorMittal, uh, they've said that their net, uh, their, their iron ore has shipped at a market price, but that is not the main highlight here. I just want to bring you the EBITDA number, which came in at $1.6 billion in the second quarter. Net loss of $400 million in the second quarter. Operating loss of $200 million in the second quarter, including about $900 million of impairments. Uh, the net debt decreased by $1 billion during the quarter to $10.2 billion. But let's, let's talk about the guidance, because this, to pick up on what Steve was saying about Siemens, this is what ArcelorMittal have to say. After a positive 2018, the global steel industry is facing challenging market conditions in the current year as a result of, one, weaker international steel prices, Two, increases in primary raw material costs. We know that because of iron ore, the impact there, uh, and lower demand. Uh, in addition, obviously, the steel industry, and particularly ArcelorMittal, has been hit uh, by the uh, South African uh, steel industry. And there, that particular part of the business continues to face challenges. But broadly speaking, the macro hasn't been very competitive, both from a demand perspective and also from a stockpiling perspective as well. So that is the, uh, the, the guidance coming out of ArcelorMittal today. The stock is down about 20% year to date and uh, not, not, not a very pretty picture. And indeed, the guidance and the language coming out of today doesn't paint a very rosy picture going into the second half of the year But isn't that well. an extraordinary statement, though? Again, lower steel prices combined with higher raw material costs. Mm. So despite the fact that your costs are going up, mm. your prices of the product sold are going down. Well, yeah. that says a lot of things. Stockpiling. 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 It also says that the industry has overcapacity then, yeah. um, but mm. it equally shows it has no control of the inputs into the industry as well. So it's an extraordinary yeah. squeeze on the margins of this industry. And despite yeah. the fact we're going to be speaking to uh, Jean-Sebastien Jacques later mm. on from Rio Tinto uh, about the concerns that the industry has getting product to market because of some outages around the world as well. So what is going on? And I suppose the key market we have to look at is what is going on in China as well. Yes. As you say, is there mm. stock piling going on? Do we have to raise more questions about the overall uh, level of growth in that industry as well? Well, the guidance they're giving from their South African units is that they do expect steel shipments to end up increasing for the full year in 2019 versus 2018. So you could make an argument that perhaps we've bottomed here in terms of uh, you know how dire the situation is. And they've also said they're expecting international steel prices to improve, uh, even though raw material costs uh, are, of course, uh, at very high. But remember, the raw material is iron ore, and one of the reasons why iron ore prices have shot so much higher is because of the Valley uh, incident and because of the production that's been cut off from there. But uh, there have been reports in the last couple of weeks that they will be returning uh, some part of the production uh, uh, back to, uh, will bring back the facilities back online but again. again. So that should ease some of the pressure from a production standpoint, at least. On but again, okay, you finished? Sorry. Mm. But again, uh, logically, if you have uh, less product going into the industry, then prices should be going up then, surely. The steel is the byproduct of the iron ore market as well. You, one would expect if you have less supply of iron ore, then it would be less product getting to market, hence prices would firm up. The fact that prices are falling is a very worrying phenomenon, isn't it? Well, you know, it all, it's all part and parcel of, uh, and I kept, I kept saying this, stockpiling, but let's not forget, what were the very first tariffs that President Trump introduced? Aluminium and steel. Steel, why? There's so much of it. China were dumping it. And uh, he introduced that on national security concerns. And it doesn't appear as though the stockpiling momentum in this particular industry 
uh, has eased. If anything, it continues to exert headwinds on uh, some of these big uh, mining companies and steel companies in ArcelorMittal. You can clearly see that in their numbers today. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.